Thanks for continuing to listen to The Making of Medicus. As of now, I currently have my podcast on Spotify and Anchor. On Spotify, you'll be able to listen to music clips that I've incorporated into my podcast, as well as on Apple Podcasts without the music clips. Also, feel free to share with friends and family, especially if you're an undergrad in pre-med or medical student or in residency to your fellow students and residents. Thank you again. Episode 4. Better to ask for forgiveness than permission. I'm skipping forward several years in training. You have to understand a surgeon's first save to understand why we keep doing what we do. Each surgeon has in their memory the first patient they single-handedly saved, who is now alive due to their quick decision and action. I honestly was a pretty natural clinician in medical school, but at that time you still don't have the skill or knowledge set for the intervention. That is what the residency training is for. I had MD after my name for approximately 14 months before the night in August. That was my first save. It was actually my first month of night call. I was the only neurosurgery physician for approximately 60 to 70 neurosurgical patients. It was my responsibility to keep all the patients on the floor, intensive care, and consults stable and alive until morning. It was just before 9 p.m. that night when my attending on call told me he accepted a patient with an intraventricular hemorrhage and they were being airlifted to our ICU. They may need an external ventricular drain. This is a drain placed in the brain to drain spinal fluid and measure brain pressure. If there is a hemorrhage, it would drain the blood it needed to keep this from building up. If it built up too much, the patient would have a second stroke in the brain and this would become non-survivable. When the pupils enlarge, then the second stroke is about to happen or could have already happened. I placed what I needed at the bedside. I was new and anxious. I wanted everything ready if I needed it. Just then I could hear the chopper land as well as the smell of fuel. The neurosurgery ICU was on the 11th floor, the top one in the critical care hospital that had just opened up. They brought the patient into the room. I quickly performed a neurological exam. Pupils were dilated, non-responsive on both sides as I flashed my uh, flashlight to see if they did. The patient wasn't moving, arms or legs, nothing to pain. I grabbed the train of four, what we used to make sure the paralytic is worn off for the cause of the non-movement. This is commonly used by anesthesiologists in the operating room. The train of four had four out of four muscle twitches, which meant there was no paralytic still on board from the intubation. The patient was a Glasgow coma scale of three, the worst on the scale from three to 15. I quickly pulled up the images on the computer Diffuse centricular hemorrhage throughout both lateral ventricles, the third and the fourth. They were dilated, and she didn't have any in cisterns. 
a sign of increased pressure. The CT had been performed a little over an hour ago. I just looked at the time. The patient was young. This didn't look like a subarachnoid. It didn't look like a hypertensive stroke either. It had to be vascular in origin, but it wasn't straightforward. My attending had told me to possibly get a CTA on the patient when they arrived. That's the study that we use to look at the blood vessels and to see if there is a aneurysm or in this patient's case, an arterial venous malformation. But that would take me almost 30 minutes. The patient didn't even have that. I would have to pack them up, take the elevator to the second floor, take them to radiology, have them do the scan, and bring the patient all the way back. I just didn't have the time for the extra study. Or it wasn't me, the patient didn't have the time. I had to try to save this patient. So I went ahead whispered to myself it was better to ask for forgiveness than permission, and I proceeded to insert the external ventricular drain since no family was able to be reached at this time. Quickly, I used the clippers to shave off the right side of the hair setting aside for the funeral home if the patient didn't survive. Next, I drew my incision. It was approximately 10.5 centimeters from the nason and three centimeters lateral in line with the mid-pupillary line, but the pupil was already blown and large. This is what we call Coker's point. I had prepped the area, did an emergent timeout. There had been no family to consent. They had yet to arrive and we didn't even know who they were yet. I had asked. I injected local, the scalp bled. I used a scalpel to make about an inch incision and used the retractors to help stop the bleeding with the pressure. I asked one of the nurses to hold the head as I applied pressure with a hand drill, going all by feel as I used the hand drill similar to one you'd find in a child's toolkit to drill the burr hole the catheter would go into. As I got into the inner table of the skull, the drill broke through in a controlled manner and I could palpate the dura, the covering of the brain underneath. At this point, I looked up and the paramedic flight crew was still there. I replied, what are you guys still doing here? They commented I had been so fast, the patient was still on the board they needed before they could leave. I hadn't even realized that. I'd been so in the moment, unsure but sure enough in my decision to go with it, that I'd left the bulky board underneath the patient before I'd prepped her out with sterile drapes. They would have to wait until I was finished. Next, I got the catheter ready. I slowly passed the catheter into the brain to a depth of approximately five centimeters, aiming for a bullseye in the middle of the brain called the foramen of Monroe. like throwing darts, aiming for the middle. Shrivel spinal fluid and blood started to come through, squirting on my gown since it was under so much pressure. 
I then proceeded to tunnel the catheter and secure it in place and close the incision with suture. I then took off my gown, gloves, mask, and placed them um, in the trash as I went to the computer to place in orders, including the CTA of the brain. The pressure was in the low 30s, but it was coming down. Maybe we got to it in time. I allowed the catheter to drain more fluid. Time would tell the patient's fate. I made my way to the resident call room to telephone the attending on call. They weren't really upset with me, but they weren't happy, especially with me doing a procedure without the CTA. I learned as a medical student by observing other residents, this is not the time to argue. You listen, you say it won't happen again, you learn, and then you move on. And that's exactly what I did. Deep down, I wanted to say the patient was dead when they came in. I couldn't hurt them more than they already were, but I didn't. Did I make the decision to intervene based on emotion rather than medicine? This was a teacher, similar to my own mom and dad. They collapsed at a school event. Had this hit too close to home for me? Was it because this patient was close to my own age? I couldn't let them go, not that easily. They're not their neurological exam had been so poor. Was I putting my own neck on the line in residency way early for someone who was already gone? Was I crossing that line? But with all the patients I had to cover that night, I didn't even have time to sulk and overanalyze it. I had to move on. I would have to wait and see how the patient actually did. This reminded me of the uneasiness I had during a few instances when I was a medical student at UT Southwestern. There were three times my clinical judgment picked up what my team didn't. The first time, I wasn't vocal enough. That had been my error, not being aggressive. The first instance was during my pediatric rotation. There was a young male who had come in admitted with Discitis, or an infection of the disc in his back. He was planning to go to the operating room that day with the pediatric neurosurgeons, and with my interest in neurosurgery, I had picked him up as a new patient that morning. When I did his exam, his abdomen was rock hard, similar to what they taught us regarding peritonitis, inflammation of the peritoneum in the abdomen, and this was a surgical emergency. I went and let my intern know immediately. By the time we had later rounds with the whole team, the patient had already gone to the OR, and my attending later called me that night. They had discovered his abdomen was hard after surgery, and were trying to see when it had actually started. I told her I'd let the intern know what I'd picked up on rounds and my concern about it. And I realized after that, if the person who above me is not too concerned with a concerning matter, I will keep going above their head until I am personally okay with the outcome or management of the patient. Which is probably why I 
then spoke up the way I did on my surgery rotation at the VA. One of my patients, a cirrhotic, a person with liver disease, needed his gallbladder removed. He was recovering from pneumonia, so his surgery was delayed. Each day I rounded on him for at least a week. There was no change. One day he coughed so much that I felt he coughed himself an incarcerated umbilical hernia. I told my second year resident who blew me off about it, but I learned to not accept that from my previous experience. An incarcerated hernia was an emergency or he was gonna get sick real quick. So my chief resident who was sleeping on the couch, I casually woke up before rounds. I mentioned to her that I made the patient MPO with the nurses. He had coughed himself an umbilical incarcerated hernia, and I felt it was needed to be addressed that day with his gallbladder. And there was no more pushing it back to another day. She got up and double-checked me on rounds that day after the second year failed to mention my finding when he presented the patient to her. I think she was skeptical of my plan, but once she examined the patient, she gave the other resident look like you better be glad the medical student caught this and the patient had an operation that very day. My last patient I can remember was a 48-year-old mentally handicapped patient. She had no family and was a transfer out of the medicine ICU to the floor when I was on my medicine rotation at Parkland. She had been septic and started on antibiotics and endocarditis an infection of the heart valves had been ruled out with a transthoracic echo of the heart. However, her blood cultures were persistent and two out of two streptococcus bovis, a bacteria linked with endocarditis and colorectal cancer. Similar to the laws from the house of God, number five, my upper level internal medicine resident was looking for placement and disposition the day after she came to the floor. It was me who argued with him. I said, she needs a proper workup. She needs a transesophageal echo since this is a more specific type of bacteria that's linked to colon cancer and she needs a colonoscopy to rule this out. She's mentally handicapped or very slow and she'll be back if we undertreat her bacteremia, quote unquote, infection of the blood. I remember him specifically throwing his hands up in the air and saying, she's your patient then and you do whatever you want. And I replied with this fake smile, can you at least sign these orders here so I can get these studies done? That was back when the chart was uh, paper and not electronic. I knew my grade was going to take a bit of a hit for being so stubborn, but I was right. She did have endocarditis caused by a lesion in her colon. I had learned to not back down and she ended up getting the medical attention she needed. I'd fulfilled law number 11. Show me a medical student from the best medical school who will only triple my work, and I will kiss his feet. I had added more work, but it was focused, addressed the issue, but it clearly prolonged the disposition of the patient. So I had learned in medical school to stand up for patients when I didn't have the power to order medication, labs, or studies. But now with the MD behind my name, I was learning to do it with my own. I was learning on how to become a patient advocate. Amber, the patient's nurse that night, came and got me out of the call room. You have to see this. There was the patient lying in bed 
On the ventilator, without sedation, the family had still not arrived. The CTA had shown a vascular abnormality, thank goodness far away from where I had placed my drain. But that's not why Amber came and got me. The patient was following commands. Both her pupils were now responding to light. The patient followed briskly, wiggling both her hands and feet symmetrically. Looking back, the patient probably only had five, maybe ten minutes maximum before she would have had that secondary stroke. But I was so inexperienced. I had had the drain ready to go when she arrived. I didn't waste time collecting supplies. I was right there at the bedside. Even a phone call to review everything with my attending would have taken would have taken way too much time in hindsight. But this patient who came in with a neurological exam that meant death didn't die. They were the first patient I have ever saved. And that feeling that you get when that happens is like no other. We are all humans with hopes and dreams. But is that feeling that you get ever so often for saving someone and it working out that keeps you enduring these years of training and responsibilities? And after seeing the first patient from me that I saved from death responds well so quickly, I knew my decision to ask for forgiveness instead of permission had been the correct one. So with me looking so young and like a teenager or a 20-year-old, I often get the question, how many of these have you done? And I laugh because I've done hundreds and thousands of the procedures I do every day now. But maybe, just maybe, those doctors that have inexperience might be the reason your life is saved in the future. Just food for thought.